And for our second session, to look into the understanding of the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. We have chosen five words, all similar in the way they sound, to try to impress upon our memories this week of what the experience of a Christian is all about. Who can tell me what the one word that identified the beginning of the Christian experience which we discussed last night? What was that one word? Can we say it all together? Ready? Conviction. All right. Today, we're going to go to the second word, and that is conversion. Conversion. Now, we only have five sessions to cover the whole book, and obviously, we're only going to be able to hit high points, as when we went through this series in our local church, it took some 72 hours of speaking on the subject, so obviously, we can't cover that in such depth. But we will touch on all the main points, and if you have the uh, booklet, again, open with me, and we'll see where we're going to try to get to today. We have come in the first lesson from the city of destruction up to the point of conversion, which takes place at the wicked gate. Incidentally, that's not wicked, it's wicked. And we'll be uh, enlarging upon that this morning. We're going to try to take up that portion of the progress or of of the way and try to make it to the cross this morning. And then in our third session, we've got to go all the way from the cross to the land of Beulah as we look at what the Christian confronts in the journey. You will note in your map how straight and narrow the way is, although there are many turnings and windings to it. And that is what we'll be looking at today in involving the subject of conversion and the straight and the narrow way. All right, now then, for your copy, I believe you need to turn to page number 20 as we start this morning on the subject of conversion. We left our pilgrim last night in a very precarious state of mind. He had come to realize that he was lost and that he certainly was going to suffer the judgment of God if something didn't occur in his life. He was living in the city of destruction, but he turned his back upon that lifestyle. And by reading the Bible, he came to understand that he needed to be forgiven, but he didn't understand how to be converted. So he's carrying this great burden, this guilt conscience, upon his conscience, rather. And today we want to see how that takes place, how that the burden is lifted. Now then, if you will begin with me. As we pick up there in the portion of the book, find my location here, where that we start with the beginning as he is addressing himself to the journey. Going to start reading, and I believe it's on page 20, is it, for you, where we read, Now Over the Gate was Written. Is that where we have there? 
Bill, do I have the right part for you? We begin to knock. What what is it? The bottom four lines of page number twenty. All right? Let's pick up there. We read back in the previous paragraph, now in the process of time, Christian got up to the gate. What we've had to pass over now is the discussion with obstinate and pliable, although we have had that brought out, I believe, adequately. Obstinate represents a stubborn opposition to salvation in Christ. And pliable was the character that could be easily persuaded one way or another. Whatever, he's like the chameleon. Whatever group he was in, that's what he fit in with. And he didn't last very long. We had to pass over the slew of the spawn. We passed over the encounter with Mr. Worldly Wiseman as he tries to get the pilgrim to not feels so guilty about his sin, and just start living a good, decent life. Just go join a church and attend the services and just be a good moral person. And he's been led out of the way. And those two lessons are designed to teach us two things about conversion. One, the slew of despond, and the, early, and the other, the encounter with worldly wise man. The two lessons which Bunyan would have us to understand about a person who's seeking to know how their sins can be forgiven, first in the slew of despond, where he fell in and became bogged down, stands for a person who has come to believe that his sin is so desperate that even the cross of Christ cannot forgive it. That is, that there is just no hope of ever being forgiven of one's sin. It is an extreme view of sin. The other visit, though, with worldly wise man is the opposite of the pendulum. And it swings us over to an extremely low view of sin, which says you don't need to cross. All that you need is just a good, decent life. And so he settled down in that. Now, young people, because of the age in which we're living, in which that in the world and in the church for a large degree, sin is viewed so lightly, rarely today do you ever find anyone who has fallen into the slew of despondency, of feeling like there is just no hope of them ever being forgiven. But that, there's a reason for that, and that is because the moral law of God is not preached as it ought to be today, and showing man how desperate he is and his inability to keep the moral law of God. In other segments of church history, there have been great periods of time in which people went through great periods of despondency and feeling like, I'm just too big a sinner to even be forgiven by Jesus Christ. But our problem today is not with having a too harsh view of sin, but having a too low view of sin. That sin is just something that just make up for it with a good, decent, moral life. Now then, we've come up to the gate, and we begin at that point. So in the process of time, Christian got up to the gate. Now over the gate that was written, knock, and it shall be opened unto you. He knocked, therefore, more than once or twice, saying, 
May I now enter in? Will he within open to sorry me, though I have been an undeserving rebel? Then shall I not fail to see his lasting praise on high. This is taken from an expression of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Now, what does the wicked gate represent? The wicked is not a wicked gate, but it means a very small opening, a very small compressed area. Perhaps Bunyan picked up on this from the large state churches that he attended in the, in the state of England, in the country of England, in which that on a Sunday they would open up those huge monstrous doors to allow the multitudes to walk into the church service. But then after the service was over on the Lord's Day, they would shut those doors, and if anyone desired to enter the church during the weekdays, they had to go through a little door cut in the big door. And perhaps this is where Bunyan picked up on that of how that the way of true conversion is not broad and wide, but it's a very narrow and a compressed way. I related in my own childhood, being raised in an athletic home and uh, attending many baseball games that my father participated in, whenever that he would take me to the baseball park in the old parks while they would have a large gate they would open and let the multitudes that were going to press in to attend the ball game. But after you went through that gate, you went through what was called a turnstile. Any of you know what that is? Maybe you've gone to Worlds of Fun or uh, uh, Disney World or something like that, and you have to go through one of those little narrow ways. And there's a bar that turns, and it only allows you in there one at a time. You can't take your buddy along with you. It's a personal encounter as you present your ticket, then you're let into the park itself. And what the Bible and Bunyan is saying here to us is that conversion is a personal thing between you and God. It's not something that you can take your buddies and let's say, well, let's just all have a good time here. No, it's something that is personal between you and God and you must enter a compressed way. And that means that you can't carry your luggage in with you. You've got to press your way in through that narrow gate. What do I mean by your luggage? I mean your love of sin. You cannot have Christ and your love of sin at the same time. Now, where did this originate at in the Bible, the wicked gate? You have your Bibles, I trust. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew, the seventh chapter. Our Lord, in verse 12, summarizes what he has stated in the Sermon on the Mount, of his teachings on the moral law of God and man's obligation to do it. And then he gives forth man's duty to embrace what he has set forth. Verse 13 of Matthew 7. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, 
Narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that what? That find it. So what's this telling us about conversion from the teachings of Jesus Christ himself? It tells us that conversion is a rare and a difficult thing, and that the masses of Adam's race do not enter into a true understanding of conversion. And it also tells us something else. I don't believe that while uh, it is true that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, all are lost in Adam. Those who are not religious are lost. But I don't believe that's what our Lord is, is endorsing here, while that is the biblical truth. But I believe what he is addressing here is to would-be religious people, because they must make a conscious decision about whether they're going to enter into a straight and disciplined lifestyle or whether they're going to live a broad and loose lifestyle. Our Lord was not addressing pagans as we know them today. He was addressing Jewish hearers who were religious, but they were religious, but what? But lost. And this has much application for current day Christianity and church members. Some would just make a decision, yeah, I'll join the church, and they enter in to a broad way, thinking that they're on the way to heaven when they're really not. No, it's a narrow way. Conversion is a rare and a difficult thing. It involves embracing Christ in all of his offices, and they are threefold. You can remember them by three P's or three P's in a pod, if you can remember that analogy. Prophet, or rather, Christ is a prophet to teach us the will of God. He is a priest to intercede for us. On behalf of the Father, and what else? Bill, can you tell me? Yeah. <laughs> yes. The potentate, he is the king. The prophet, priest, and king. And the Lord Jesus Christ must be embraced as in the totality of his person as he administers these offices. What, why am I saying that? Because some would have you taught today that you can receive Jesus as a priest and a Savior to have your sins forgiven while you reject him as your king. And this, the statement that is so common in current youth evangelism is accept Christ as your what? Personal Savior. All right? If you accept Christ, then you are receiving him as a prophet, to tell you what God says about you. And you are receiving him as a priest to be your Savior, and you're receiving him as a potentate or a king to rule over your life. Now, I married one person, my wife. She has many characteristics about her. But if I took her to be my wife, I embraced the totality of her person. I didn't marry her for five years for this, and then ten years later I married her for this. I married her as a person. 
When we receive Christ in true conversion, we don't receive Him on the installment plan. That is, we don't take Christ as Savior today and then five years down the road decide, well, now, I'd like to be a disciple. Maybe I better take Him as Lord. True conversion involves entering into a relationship personally with Jesus Christ. Now, we've come up to the gate, and the man begins to knock. He's sincere. He doesn't just knock once, but he asks again and again and again. Is this to teach us that God is reluctant to forgive us of our sins? No, absolutely not. But it is to teach us the lesson that we must sincerely desire to be converted above all else. Have you ever ran into your kitchen and wanted some cookies or something, and you ask one of your parents, I'd like to have a cookie, Mother. She doesn't do anything. She goes right on washing the dishes. And then you say again, I'd like a cookie. She says, just a moment. And then you realize that, well, she's not getting, I'm not getting her attention. Mother, I want a cookie. And so she stops and gives you a cookie. Now then, what are you showing to her? that you really wanted that cookie. If you just asked the first time, she'd said no, you'd have run right back out and oh, well, I didn't want that cookie anyway. God is not reluctant to forgive us of our sins, but He does require for us to be aware that we must want our sins forgiven above all else. So knock once, again, and keep on knocking. At last there came a grave person a serious person to the gate named Goodwill, who asked who was there, whence he came, and what he would have. Three questions which every seeking sinner must answer at the gate of God. Who is Goodwill? Goodwill represents Jesus Christ in the free offer of the gospel. Goodwill is the character or the attribute of God which now tells the seeking sinner that God is a merciful and a forgiving God. Now, that's good news, is it not, for the sinner? He does not know whether God is going to forgive him or whether he's going to condemn him. But now the message comes forth from the one who is about to open the gate God has merciful attitudes and goodwill toward seeking sinners. Now, let me interject something here at this point. God is a merciful God. But listen to me, young people. God was not obligated to be merciful. Justice must be bestowed, but mercy is optional. God didn't have to save anybody. Now, do you disagree with me, or do you agree with me on that? Did God owe it to any sinner to send his son to die for them? He didn't send anybody to die for the fallen angels when they fell. No, God is an absolute just God. And he could have condemned every one of us here today and been absolutely just in doing so. But the good news is 
that Jesus Christ is God's messenger to reveal the goodwill, the mercy of God toward sinners. And goodwill asks the pilgrim three questions. Who are you? Where have you come from? And what do you want? Now, here is how the sinner makes his approach to God. Here's what he asks and how he answers. Christian, here's a poor, burdened sinner. If Goodwill had asked that to the Pharisee when he made his approach to God, you recall in the Gospel of Luke where the Pharisee and the publican both went up the temple to approach God, and the Pharisee, he began to talk to God, and he said, I thank you that I'm not as what? As others, as this man are, I fast, I tithe, I do all of these things. And you're just pretty lucky to have me here. And what did the publican say in his approach to God? God, be merciful to me, the what? The sinner. Now, Jesus said, which one of those two did God accept? The one who had all in his own eyes that he was good and moral and righteous, or the one who said, just be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, that person went down to his house justified. If you're going to enter through the gate of true conversion, you must be willing to confess that you are a poor, burdened sinner. Where did you come from? I came from the city of destruction. That is, I'm an object of the wrath of God. And I don't want to stay in that city because God's going to destroy it one day. But I'm going to Mount Zion that I may deliver, be delivered from the wrath to come. I want an inheritance in the life beyond, in the pleasure of God. So those three questions must be addressed. If God asks you, if you came up to heaven today and he asks you, who are you? What would you say? My Lord, you know me. I'm the one that preached down there on earth. I'm the one that taught a Sunday school class. I'm the one that had a 10-year a perfect Sunday school attendance pen. You want me to see it? Look at here. Look at here. I'm afraid that there are actually people, Brother Askell, who are going to do that. Jesus said there would be. That many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we done many wonderful works, and in my name cast out devils. And then he will say, depart from me, you what? Workers of iniquity, I never did know you. No, you must confess if you came up to God's heaven today before that celestial city, and he asked, what right do you have to enter in? He's going to ask you, who are you first? You must say, I'm a sinner. I need mercy. Where did you come from? I came from a world that was condemned by your justice. Where do you want to go? I want to live in a world where everybody loves you and glorifies your son and loves one another. That's the kind of life I want to live. And my friend, that you'll either say that here in true conversion or you'll say it there before that great day of judgment and then it may be too late. It may be too late. I would, therefore, sir, since I am informed by this gate, it's the way hither, to know if you are willing to let me in. I am willing with all my heart, said he. And with that, he opened the gate. Now the person enters in to the gate of conversion. But now, this is an exciting book. 
When I was a boy, I liked westerns. Zane Gray was one of my favorite books that I used to like to read. Cowboys and Indians. A lot of action going on. This is an action-packed book, too. Because just as the Christian is going through the narrow gate of conversion, why, goodwill gives him a pull and yanks him in. Then said Christian, what means this? The other told him, a little distance from this gate there is erected a strong castle, of which Beelzebub, or the devil, is the captain. And thence both he and they that are with him shoot arrows at those that come up to this gate, if haply they may die before they can enter in. What is Bunyan telling us here? That at the moment of true conversion, the devil will release all his forces that he can to try to confuse your mind as to how to be saved. He's about to lose one of his captives. And the arrows represents the fiery darts of Satan. As the scriptures relate that, that is, he has access to shoot these darts into your mind and understanding, and you may actually think that they originated in your own mind. He'll confuse the seeking sinner. And if it were not for the goodwill of God, all would perish before they entered that gate. So Christian said, I rejoice and tremble. And so when he was got in, the man at the gate asked him, Who had directed him thither? Christian evangelist bid me come hither and knock, and as I did, and he said that you, sir, would tell me what I must do. An open door is set before thee, and no man can shut it. Christian says, Now I begin to reap the benefit of my hazards. And then the narrative goes on as Goodwill asked him what he had encountered. And he explained how he had encountered Obstinate and Pliable and Mr. Worldly Wise Men and fell in to his advice. So now the individual is converted. Now if you would, turn on over in your, uh, in your book to, uh, let's see, about the part there where Goodwill makes this statement. We make no objections. A couple of paragraphs on down. Have you thought that yet? We make no objections against any, notwithstanding all that they have done before they come hither. They in no wise are cast out. And therefore, good Christian, come a little way with me, and I will teach thee about the way thou must go. Now notice he's gone through the gate. Now he's also going to be instructed that there is a, what? Narrow way. What is the emphasis that is being made here? It is to show us that the Christian life is not to be a loose and broad life. The Christian life is a narrow life in which self must be denied and the will of God sought out after. Now, there's a teaching that has become quite popular in Baptist circles and other evangelical churches, and that is that you can have Christ as your Savior and enter into the gate of conversion, and then you can opt to either be a carnal Christian or a spiritual Christian. And the image, instead of the Bible having a straight gate, a very narrow little gate, and a narrow way, 
the idea is like this. Yes, you go through a narrow gate, but then you have a great big broad road that you can travel. You can live however you want to, and you won't miss out on heaven. You'll just miss out on some rewards when you get to heaven. Now, young people, that is not the biblical description of the Christian life. Discipleship is not optional. You must receive Christ in the totality of all of his offices and not just get him as a fire escape from hell. You must embrace him in all that he is. Conversion is only the beginning of the way. Now note the three things. You have the gate, the way, and life. You don't get the life except through the gate and the way. These are three great doctrines that are set forth in Scripture. They are justification, sanctification, and glorification. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ in regenerating grace and conversion. We are progressively conformed in sanctification unto the image of Christ as we walk the way, and one day we will enter into glorification of life without any more sin, sickness, problems in this world. So the conversion is from a broad way to a narrow way. Now, there are two errors which cause much misunderstanding as to the nature of the Christian faith. One error today that is taught is that which would make the entrance into the Christian life apart from the gate. And formalist and hypocrisy. Have you read that far in the book yet? If you've got there in your reading, anybody haven't come to that? All right, we'll catch them in our next setting then. Formalist and hypocrisy got in on the way, but not by the gate. That is, just through formal living and by living a life of hypocrisy, they professed that they were church people. But they didn't come by the way of conversion. Now, that error is very prominent, that you don't really need to be saved, just live a formal and a decent life. Mr. Worldly Wise Man is the example of that. But then there is another error which is prominent in Baptist circles, and it's caused much harm in our contemporary work among Baptists. And that error is this. It's the error which makes the gate to be the end of the journey. You just get saved, make a profession of faith in Christ, and just sit down, once saved, always saved, eternally secure, everything's all over. Just roll on and live however you want to, because those who are once saved can never be lost. And so that is a grievous error. Now, I don't want to leave a misunderstanding there. All of God's sheep shall be eternally saved. And if you're truly saved this morning, you will not be lost. The pilgrim will not fall by the wayside. Some of his other would-be pilgrims will fall by. But not a one of Christ's pilgrims shall fail to enter the celestial city. But that's not the same thing as being said today. Some are saying you just nod your head to Jesus, now you're a Christian, and that's the end of this thing called salvation. But 
Salvation is not only delivering us from the wrath of God, it's also changing our nature so that we can enjoy living with God in the world to come. God must not only justify us, he must also sanctify us. One error is known theologically as legalism, and the other error is known as antinomianism. Now, if you will look on, we make no objections. Look before thee, dost thou see this narrow way? This is the way that thou must go. It was cast up by the patriarchs, prophets, Christ, and his apostles. It is as straight as a rule can make it. This is the way that thou must go. But, said Christian, are there no turnings nor windings by which a stranger may lose his way? Yes, there are many ways but down upon this, and they are crooked and wide. But thus thou may distinguish the right from the wrong, the right only being straight and narrow. Young people, you'll get yourself in decision-making sometimes in which you don't know whether this is right or that is right. How are you going to know the right from the wrong? The straight way requires you to deny yourself for the rights of others. And if you ever have a question, just say, well, I'm not sure about this, then if it's in my interest, I'm going to deny my own self. And you can be assured that you're not going to be led astray off of that straight and narrow way. Now then, let's move on to the next part of the book. If you would, advance to page number 35. Page number 35. We're going to have to pass over one of my favorite portions of the book, and that is the House of the Interpreter, which stands for the Illuminating Ministry of the Holy Spirit teaching and instructing the Christian about the way. We're going to have to pass over uh, that at this time. If you are in the location in your book, you should be, if I have your page down right, where it says, Now I saw in my dream. Is that correct? Did I get it correct for you? Okay, let's pick up at that point. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the what? Now, isn't this interesting? He's converted, but he's still got a guilt conscience about his sin. What's going on here? Now, some would have us to understand that he's not really converted because they teach that the essence of faith is the assurance of faith. And if you're not absolutely 100% sure that you're going to heaven, you're just not going to heaven. That's what some teach. Assurance that you have been accepted in God's favor is not necessary to the being of a Christian. Listen carefully. It is necessary to the well-being of a Christian. You read the second part of the book, and you'll find several pilgrims on there. Mr. Fearing, he went the whole way, just wondering, am I really going to be accepted? If you've ever driven along the Florida coastline here, while you know sometimes while you can drive the speed limit and maybe a little more, sun shining, you can see a long way down the road. 
and you have no fear. Other times you get here on this coastline, and it is so foggy that you have to row down the side window and look out the window and just try to pick up the little marks of the center line. And you just have to crawl along to get to your destination. Some people, it seems, in the providence of God, go to heaven 70 miles an hour, a clear day all the way. I've been around people like that. They just seem to be filled with joy. They never seem to have a real care. Whatever it is, they're ready to say, let's believe God. One of them is called faithful. And some of those in the second half, mercy and others. But listen, I also have come across people that have been, from my understanding and by their testimony, give evidence they know the Lord for 20 years, and they go to heaven in a fog. A step at a time. A step here and a step there. They seem to have so little assurance of acceptance. So here's the individual. He's gotten through the gate, but now he still has this burden on his back. We read now in verse, uh, rather on the next statement, He ran thus until he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a what? A cross. What, what's the mean? What's the geo- geographical image that Bunyan's portraying for us here? He comes to a place that's a little bit ascending. What's he saying? What is that? It's a mountain. See? A little ascension. Where was Christ crucified? On a mount called what? Calvary. And as he gives up his little incline, he sees a cross. And then down at the bottom of that little hill, he sees a sepulcher, which is a what? A tomb. What happened to Christ after he died? They buried him, didn't they? Put him in a tomb. So now here's the man. He knows that he can only be saved by the person of Christ. He's converted to that aspect. Now he sees a fresh view and a real view of what the cross, what was taking place there. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loose from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher Well, it fell in, and I saw it, what? No more. We sing a song, Living he loved me, buried, how does that go? I forgot it. Dying he saved me, buried he carried my what? Sins far away, rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. And so here's this burdened man convinced that Christ alone can save, but now he suddenly sees what Christ did on that cross for him. And my friends, that's true conversion, because he had been told about Jesus' death on the cross. There may be individuals on this beachfront today in all the youth conferences that are held by the different groups which will be teaching about Jesus Christ. But you know what I'm afraid some of those groups are going to be teaching their young people about Jesus Christ and his death? That he died just as a good example for them to follow. That he died as a, in order to produce a moral influence 
of pity on behalf of his hearers. Theologically, that's called the moral influence view of the atonement of what took place on the cross. What do you mean by that, Brother Jim? I mean this. Many churches teach that the reason Jesus died was that they were to be enabled to see that he was such a good man and he had so many bad things done to him by bad people. You don't want to be a bad person, therefore feel sorry and have pity upon Jesus upon the cross. But now listen, young people, that's not why Jesus died, just to make you feel sorry for him. He died in order to satisfy your sin debt. He died in order to pay to God what you owed and could not pay. That is called substitution. It's the just person dying for the unjust person that we might be reconciled unto God. No, I'm not here today to try to tell you sob stories about Jesus to get you to cry and vote for him. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners in order to save those sinners by paying their sin debt. Now, this is why, young people, some of you, if God's providence allows, you'll be able to hear many ministers in the course of your remaining life. You know how to pick out somebody who's preaching the true view of the cross from somebody who's talking about the cross? One who merely preaches the moral influence view of feeling sorry for Jesus will reenact out and dramatize what's taking place on the cross. I've heard them time and time again. They'll emphasize of how that Jesus had to carry his cross. And they'll make that very dramatic. And they'll have him carried up the hill. He'll fall down and he'll struggle and he's hurting. And then he'll lift up that cross and nail him to it. Jar him as it goes down in the ground. And all of what that fellow is designed to do to you is to make you feel sorry for the physical sufferings of Jesus upon the cross. But listen. Read your gospel accounts. The apostles do not play upon people's emotions by describing the details of Christ's crucifixion. They just say he was nailed to the cross. But if you want to have an understanding of what took place at the cross, read the epistles, and there the apostles will explain to you What was taking place was substitution. It is the doctrine of the cross that brings us to Christ, not just a physical understanding of what happened to him at the hands of sinful men. If you would have your burden rolled away, then just don't feel sorry for Jesus in his physical sufferings. Understand that he was dying in the place of the sinner to bring you to God. He saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still for a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease his burden. 
He looked therefore and looked again, even until the springs that were in his head sent the waters running down his cheeks. That is, he began to weep. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with peace be to thee. Now here's the effects of conversion. Peace with God. Thy sins be forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of raiment. Do you see that? Justification. The third set a mark in his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it. Here's his assurance. Hold on to that roll and present it at the gate when you get there. Then Jesus, or rather Christian, gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Now here in the analogy, we have the example of conversion. I'd like for us to go over as we did in the first session now and pick up Hopeful's uh, testimony as to how he was saved, and you'll see what else is going on here in the life of the pilgrim. I need to you, for you to go to page number 161. Now, drop back over there, 161, and look in the portion of the narrative where Christian says, What did you do then? On the correct page there. Anyone? Have I got you in the wrong location? All right. First statement. What did you do then? I made... Oh, wait a minute. Let's drop uh, uh, hopeful. Do. I could not tell you what to do until I broke my mind to faithful. For he and I were well acquainted, and he told me that unless I could obtain the righteousness of a man that had never sinned, neither mine own, nor any other, all the righteousness of the world could save me. And did you think he spake true? Hopeful. Had he told me so when I was pleased and satisfied with my own amendments, I had called him a fool for his pains. But now, since I have seen my own infirmity and the sin which pleased to my best performance, I have been forced to be of his opinion. Christian, but did you think when at first he suggested it to you that there was such a man to be found of whom it might justly be said that he never committed sin? Hopeful, I must confess the words at first sounded strangely, but after a little more talk in company with him, I had full conviction 
about it. And did you ask him what man this was and how you might be justified by him? Yes, he told me it was the Lord Jesus that dwelleth on the right hand of the Most High. And thus said he, you must be justified by him, even by trusting to that which he had done by himself in the days of his flesh and suffered when he did hang on the tree. I ask him further how that man's righteousness could be of that efficacy to justify another before God. And he told me, he, that is Jesus, was the Almighty God, and did what he did, and died the death also, not for himself, but for me, to whom his doings and the worthiness of them should be imputed, if I believed on him. What did you do then? Well, I made my objections against my believing, for that I thought he was not willing to save me. And what said faithful to you then? He bid me go to him and see. Then I said it was presumption. He said, no, for I was invited to come. Then he gave me a book of Jesus' indictings to encourage me to more freely to come. And he said concerning that book that every jot and tittle thereof stood firmer than heaven and earth. And then I asked him what I must do when I came. And he told me I must entreat upon my knees with all my heart and soul the Father to reveal him to me. Then I asked him further, How must I make my supplications to him? And he said, Go, and thou shalt find him upon a what? Young people, where is Jesus at today? He's at the right hand of God, and there he's on a throne of grace. On a throne of grace. Quite often I have young people ask me, Preacher, what are you talking about when you say in your service, Come to Christ? What do you mean, come to Christ? And some attend services where they have the idea given to them that at the close of the service, there's an invitation hung, a hymn that's sung, and to come to Christ means to get up out of your seat and come to the front of the altar and bow there, and there's where Jesus is. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Bunyan never taught that. Do you know where Jesus is at today? He's on a throne. How do you get to him? All bowed down. That's how you get to him. And he's on a throne of mercy that has satisfied the justice of God. Coming to Christ is not a physical movement of the feet. It's a spiritual understanding of the mind. It is an understanding that Jesus was God. He died in the place of the sinner, rose again, purchased everything necessary to save a sinner. And the sinner must now come to that understanding and bow down and say, I trust that. That's what it means to come to Christ. Paul says in the book of Romans, we don't have to ascend into the heaven to get to Jesus. We don't have to bring Jesus from the heavens back down here geographically on earth. But we do have to go to him in the gospel. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe where? In thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's the promise. And so here the hopeful was saying, I didn't understand what it meant to come to Christ. I thought I had to move physically. Now then we read where he sets all the year long to give pardon and forgiveness to them that come. I told him I knew not what to say when I came. He bid me say to this effect, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
to make me to know and believe in Jesus Christ, for I see that if his righteousness had not been, or I have not had not faith in that righteousness, I am utterly cast away. Lord, I have heard that thou art a merciful God, has ordained that the Son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world, and moreover that thou art willing to bestow him upon such a poor sinner as I am. And I am a sinner indeed. Lord, take therefore this opportunity and magnify thy grace in the salvation of my soul. Through thy Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Christian, did you do as you were bidden? Hopeful, yes, over and over and over. And did the Father reveal the Son to you? That is, did you have your burden lifted? Well, not at the first or the second nor the third nor the fourth nor the fifth nor at the sixth time, neither. What did you then? Now, that's not saying that you cannot be saved the first time you call on Christ. But all's experiences are not the same way. They don't take place in the same fashion. But I could not tell you what to do. Had you not had thoughts of leaving off praying? Yes, a hundred times twice told. What was the reason that you did not? I believe that it was true which had been told me to wit that without the righteousness of this Christ all the world could not save me. And therefore thought I with myself, if I leave off I die, and I can but die at the throne of grace. And whither this came to my mind, if it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come and will not tarry. So I continued praying until the, till the Father showed me his Son. Now listen carefully as we begin to bring this to a conclusion. How was he revealed to you? Hopeful. I did not see him with my bodily eyes, but with the eyes of my what? What does your text say? Mine understanding. Brother Nettles will be speaking on the new birth tonight and other sessions this week. I'm sure he'll use or at least refer to the famous passage of John 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot what? See? Except a man be born again, he cannot enter. What does it mean to see the kingdom? Does it mean when you get saved that you'll have visions which your natural eyes shall see and then you'll know you're saved? Will there be some tingling sensation that will let you know that you've been saved? No, young people, when the Bible uses the term, except a man be born again, he cannot see. It's referring to the sight of his spiritual understanding. Like I say to Bill, I'm trying to explain to him how to hit a ball this afternoon way out there in the ocean. And I say to him, now, Mr. Askell, before you can get any power to hit a baseball, you first must clear the hips before you get the power to get the arms and the wrist to come through. He tries it, and he just dribbles the ball a few feet. And I say, I say, Bill, and I grab him, and I say, listen, don't you get it? Don't you understand? Don't you see? And what I'm trying to impress upon him is get it in your mind. Don't you see it? And what the pilgrim is saying here, I didn't see Christ with the visible eye. But I saw him in my understanding of God's record of the gospel. And that's how peace comes. When you see it, then the burden is lifted.
I'm going to drop down for time's sake, read down just a couple of paragraphs. I hate to bypass, but for your sake and mine, we must do so. Christian says, this was a revelation of Christ to your soul indeed, but tell me particularly what effect this had upon your spirit. I'm going to let Brother Nettles handle this. I think he's going to take this tonight in a different fashion, the effects of regeneration. Hopeful. It made me see that all the world, notwithstanding all the righteous thereof, is in a state of condemnation. It made me see that God the Father, though he be just, can justify the coming sinner. It made me greatly ashamed of the vileness of my former life and confounded me with the sense of mine own ignorance. For there never never came a thought into my heart before now that showed me so the beauty of Jesus Christ. Now look, young people, it made me love a what? A holy life. And long to do something for the honor and the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. How do you know whether you're a Christian or not? Do you love to live the kind of life that Jesus lived for the glory of God? Do you want to do something to promote his person, his name, his cause? Yea, I thought that had I now a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I could spill it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the effect of true conversion. Let me summarize it in this fashion. Conversion is walking down a road of self-will suddenly being confronted by the truth of God's Word as to who you are and what you need. And it's doing an about-face, turning from sin, the world, and self, and walking toward God and holiness. False conversion, that is, is being preached in contemporary Baptist circles, takes place like this. Here is the sinner, loving self. He's walking down the road of self-pleasure. Suddenly he hears he needs to go to heaven. He stops, pauses, objects to Jesus, and then continues right on down the road of self-will. Young people, that is not biblical conversion. And you'll never see God if that's what you think is only necessary for you to enter into heaven. You must do an about-face and repent and turn to Christ in the gospel. Have you had your burden lifted? Or how many, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, I told you I wasn't going to manipulate you. I'm not going to twist arms. But how many have a liberty that when you eat here in a moment, Go out there in that surf, and you know that you're no longer an object of the wrath of God. I tell you, I thank God for that. I don't know what's going to happen out there today. I may not even get in. But if I go out there and something happens to me, that's the end of my life. My friend, I have a life that is yet to come. And the greatest peace that I have is in knowing 
that God's wrath has been shifted to Jesus Christ on the cross, and his righteousness has been applied to me, and I stand clothed, accepted in his sight. Young people, it's real. It's very real. This is not just a play on the mind. It is real. I've asked our song leader, whom I just met this week, if he would come and sing a song that my song leader sang when we closed this session in our local church. He'd never heard this song before. And he's learned it overnight. I'm going to sing it for you at this time. It's the testimony of a Christian, and it's the testimony of our pilgrim. Tim, I'm going to ask you to sing it, and if you think that they can do it after you complete it, have them sing the chorus as a whole. Listen carefully. How well do I remember How I doubted day by day For I did not know for certain That my sins were washed away When the Spirit tried to tell me I would not the truth receive I endeavored to be happy and to make myself believe. When the truth came close in searching, all my joy would disappear. Oh, I did not know have the witness of the Spirit bright and clear. If at times the coming judgment would appear before my mind, Oh, it made me so uneasy, for God's smile I could not find. But it's real, it's real, oh, I know it's real. Praise God, the doubts unsettled, for I know, I know it's real. But at last I tired of living, such a life of fear and doubt For I wanted God to give me Something I would not about So the truth would make me happy And the light would clearly shine And the Spirit gave assurance That I'm His and He is mine And it's real, it's real, oh, I know it's real. Praise God, the doubt's unsettled, for I know, I know it's real. So I pray to God in earnest, and not caring what folks said, I was hungry for a blessing. My poor soul, it must be fed. When at last by faith I touched him, And like sparks from smitten still, Just so quickly salvation reached me, Oh, bless God, I know it's real. Yes, it's real, it's real, oh, I know. 
its thrill. Praise God, the doubt's unsettled, for I know, I know it's real. Will you join me? Yes, it's real, it's real, oh, I know it's real. Praise God, the doubt's unsettled, for I know, I know. 